This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Just after Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia announced he'd step down later this year, an op-ed ran in the Denver Post, and the title was, Does Colorado Need a Lieutenant Governor? That has to sting if you've spent nearly six years doing the job. Whatever the answer, Garcia will leave the post and return to the world of higher education. It's not unfamiliar territory to him. He's past president of CSU Pueblo. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. We're going to dig into your tenure in a moment, but I want to start with this op-ed. It was written by two Colorado political scientists. They conclude that Colorado's lieutenant governor is necessary by the way. Right. But they say that few public opinion polls uh, that have been taken on the issue show only about a third of the public favors the retention of the position and that it's a mystery, this this position to many Coloradans. Why do you think Colorado needs a lieutenant governor? Well, primarily because you need to have someone there if the governor, for whatever reason, leaves office. Historically, the lieutenant governor ran separately from the governor. And so there wasn't always a partnership. You know, that was changed uh, a number of years ago. Now the governor picks someone who he knows or she knows they can work well with. And that's uh, what's been, I think, uh, what's marked the tenure of Governor Hickenlooper and me, is that we work well together. He wanted somebody who knew higher education. He wanted someone who could advocate for the interests of Southern Colorado. Uh, He wanted someone who understood interests of the Latino community. So he picked me. And because we have a strong partnership, I think the office has been uh, able to take on more substantial things than perhaps it has in the past. Indeed. You've had a dual role as lieutenant governor because you were also made head of the Department of Higher Education, given your higher ed background. And you have had a major role as well, leading Indian Affairs for the state and the Colorado Space Coalition. Why don't we talk higher ed, for starters? It may be a surprise to some how much you've actually focused on little kids, not on college-age students. Why has that been so much of your focus? Well, Ryan, as you mentioned, I was previously president of Colorado State University, Pueblo. And before that, I was president of Pikes Peak Community College. Both of those uh, institutions serve a lot of students who are first-generation who are low income, who come from communities of color or rural communities, and who tend not to do well, who tend to enter college uh, not as well prepared uh, as their suburban and majority peers. When really, and, and that Im- impacts their ability to graduate. And so I wanted those students to be successful. And I started looking backwards. Where does this degree attainment gap uh, first manifest itself? And we know there's a college enrollment gap. There's a persistence gap. There's also a high school graduation gap. There's an achievement gap. But what really struck me is there's a kindergarten readiness gap. That is, some kids start out already behind for the first time they walk in the schoolhouse doors. If we want more kids to be successful in higher education, we've got to do a better job of providing high-quality early childhood education for kids in every corner of the state. And do you think after six years in the position, you have been able to make improvements in that regard for kindergartners and thinking about that as a way to look at how many are getting degrees in college eventually? Absolutely. And it's not because I've made progress here. It's because a bunch of groups working together have helped to make progress there. And that is involving foundations, early childhood uh, education providers, nonprofits, uh, state government, local governments, county governments, they all recognize that this is really important. And so one of the things Colorado did a few years ago is we won a $30 million early childhood, early childhood uh, race to the top grant from the federal government 
to improve quality and access for early childhood education programs. And what has been the improvement? Can you point to a number, a percentage of growth? Yes. What we've also done is, it's part of that, is we've put more funding into early childhood. So we've funded more slots. In Colorado, early childhood education isn't universally available. Full-day kindergarten isn't universally available. So we need to support local districts in order to offer that. And we've created thousands of new slots. And we've also focused on improving quality, uh, both of the early childhood education institutions, but also the service providers, that is, increasing professionalization of the workforce. So that the little kids are exposed to people who themselves are educated. That's right. And who are educated in early childhood development. If you see the improvement in college attendance and graduation rates as related to those who are in kindergarten now or will be soon, then this is a long process, isn't it? Absolutely. And we have to take the long view. We've also focused on third grade literacy. You know, so we started the uh, uh, Early Childhood Literacy Initiative, and we've toured the state talking to educators, talking to communities about why so many kids were leaving third grade, not reading at grade level, and the impact that has and what we need to do to improve, again, uh, teacher training so that our early childhood and, and early um, grade school teachers can do a better job, but to make sure that all kids have an opportunity to be successful. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Colorado's outgoing Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia. Something of an exit interview as he moves back into the world of higher education. And on this subject of college, we have to talk about affordability. In 2014, the College Affordability Act was signed into law in the state. It capped tuition increases for Colorado residents at 6% per year. Do you think that's doing enough to keep college affordable? No, uh, it's absolutely not. I think one of the important things to acknowledge is, though, it was capped at a 6% increase. In fact, most institutions held it well below a 6% increase. The institutions understand the importance of maintaining affordability. But affordability is a function of how much money the state provides as well. And when we're cutting general fund to higher education institutions, they have to make up that funding shortfall somewhere, and it tends to be their only other option is increasing tuition. We already spend far less per student here in Colorado than virtually every other state when you combine both public contribution, the general fund, and the tuition. So we produce a lot of students at a very low cost, but it's increasing cost to the students. I want to run by you another op-ed, this one from the New York Times in April of last year. CU Boulder Law Professor Paul Campos argued that much of the increasing cost in higher ed is due to growth in administrative positions. Mm -hmm. And he cites the Department of Education saying that administrative positions at colleges and universities grew by 60 percent between 1993 and 2009. Has that been the case here in Colorado? And if so, do you think it's part of the problem? It is a part of the problem, but uh, that article dramatically overstated the problem. First, when you think, what is administration? And, you know, uh, Professor Campos is a professor. He has very much a faculty perspective, but he fails to note that administrative positions can help students. In fact, we've been emphasizing that if we want students, particularly academically underprepared students, to be successful, we need more student support services. We need more tutors. We need more instructional labs. Uh, We need more folks working in financial aid. Those people are all lumped in as administrative, but that doesn't mean they don't serve students. Now, we do need to be efficient, and our Colorado institutions 
are efficient. And in fact, they spend less money as a percentage of the total on salaries, salaries overall, than than the national average. Couldn't it be argued that what colleges and universities need more of is professors, the educators themselves? Absolutely. Um, But what professors? Do we need more part-time or more full-time? And do we need them in what fields? I mean, we're going to have those arguments all day long. And even among the professorial ranks, there'll be disagreement about how those should be allocated. But we do need more people to serve students. Think about a very fine institution like CU. Freshmen are often taught in huge lecture halls. 500 students to one professor. Is that the best way? Or is that just one of the accepted ways that we provide instruction? Very quickly, how do you answer that question? Is that the best way? Uh, I think that it's not the best way unless you combine it with, as a school like CU would, with smaller uh, lab courses with the opportunity to engage with a faculty member more directly. To some politics, there was speculation that you were going to make a run for governor in 2018 when Governor Hickenlooper is termed out. Is that out of the window now? Is is politics in your past? Uh, Politics was never in my future. I never anticipated (laughs) going into politics when then-Mayor Hickenlooper called me and asked me if I wanted to join him uh, on uh, and run. I had never run for any office before, had not been interested. Uh, And uh, Governor Hickenlooper was able to make it very attractive to me by saying, how about if you also serve as head of Department of Higher Education? But I'm not a politician. My focus is on improving educational opportunities and outcomes for all Coloradans. Briefly to your role as co-chair of the Colorado Space Coalition. So this again speaks to the many hats you wear as lieutenant governor. Uh, The goal of the coalition is to make Colorado a, quote, center of excellence for aerospace. And, you know, there had been a a lot of talk years ago about Colorado getting a spaceport that it might be next to one of the front-range airports. Where does that stand? Well, there. let me just address the aerospace industry question generally. Many people in Colorado don't realize how uh, important aerospace is to our economy. We're the number one in terms of, you look at a percentage of our population, the number one private aerospace employer in the country. In terms of total overall numbers, we're number three in the country. We have incredible aerospace companies here in Colorado. And so a lot of folks have thought that our aerospace connection was really through the military and places like the Air Force Academy or the Space Command. But it's really through places like Lockheed and Ball and ULA, the United Launch Alliance. Now, we do want to improve opportunities for those private aerospace companies. And one of the ideas was to create a spaceport out at Front Range Airport. A place where launches would occur, I guess. A space where launches would occur. And it would be not the vertical uh, launches that we see in traditional rockets, but the conventional horizontal takeoffs uh, and landings. Space planes. A space plane. Is this going to be a reality in Colorado? Well, we certainly hope that it will be. Uh, It's a long-term process requires, uh, you know, we're competing with other states. We're having to find private investment to make it happen. Uh, But I think there's absolutely a commitment and a will by our private aerospace providers to make that happen. As Lieutenant Governor, you've served as the chair of the Colorado Commission for Indian Affairs. There are two recognized tribes here, the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute. And during your tenure, agreements were signed between the state of Colorado and the tribes, specifically around health and health care. Were there improvements in Indian health as a result of that? Uh, 
Yes, but not nearly enough. I mean, the biggest improvements I can point to are in women's health care, increasing access to things like mammograms. But we also know there continue to be dramatic health disparities. They impact the Native American community more than others. We see greater incidence of diabetes, of alcoholism, of suicide. Uh, Generally, it's like any other small rural community in that you don't have large uh, hospitals close by, but it goes beyond that. And it is a complicated uh, puzzle when you bring in local health care as well as the uh, Indian Health Service. So there are a lot of things that factor in, but generally the results have not been what we'd like to see. And so what movement have you been able to make there? Well, again, the movement has been on increasing partnerships between local and federal providers. And the best results, again, we've seen have been in providing access in the areas of women's health care. And we don't think it was a health care issue, but, you know, when you think about violence in the Indian community and law enforcement in the Indian community, we've worked very close and very successfully with the U.S. attorney to improve, really, crime prevention uh, efforts on Indian, uh, in Indian country. And that's been really important as well. We don't want to overlook that part of it. The group Emerge Colorado, whose mission is to encourage women to run for office, has asked the governor to appoint a woman to replace you. Four of the last eight lieutenant governors have been women. Do you think having a woman or perhaps another minority like yourself is important in the replacement? The most important thing is finding someone who can work effectively with the governor and believes in his initiatives. I would love it if it were a woman or a minority. There have been four of the last eight have been women. There have never been. There's never been a a Hispanic uh, lieutenant governor before me. So, of course, I'd love to see that as well. But that's not what's most important. What's most important is we find someone who's capable and is really committed to working on behalf of all Coloradans. Can you say who your successor is? I can't say. You're not I, breaking that news today. I, 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 that is up to the governor. All right. Thank you for being with us. It has been my pleasure. Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia. He will be in the position likely through mid-year. And then he'll take over as president of the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, which is based in Boulder. Coming up, a different sort of first aid course. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's really difficult to follow what someone's saying if there's another voice interrupting. I could tell you about my breakfast. Don't trust him. I had a microwave burrito. Is he looking at you? Because they're so much cheaper. Why are you talking to him? That's a simulation of what it might be like to have auditory hallucinations. They're common in schizophrenia. And it's the type of reenactment used in what are called mental health first aid classes. Angela McDonald wants the training to become as common as CPR. She teaches courses for Centura Health, which operates 15 hospitals in Colorado. And a welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Good morning. We used a script from your course to build that simulation. Why do you want people without schizophrenia to experience that somewhat unmooring sound? Well, the the purpose of the curriculum in general is to provide folks with tools um, and develop sympathy around situations with someone experiencing a mental health crisis. Sympathy. We may or may not be aware of what that's like. So these simulations and role-playing exercises are very helpful and enlightening to folks that, that are in the class. Um, they may have a loved one. Um, they may have a colleague who is dealing with certain situations, be it home, otherwise. Um, one of the points that I make in um, 
the class is that we all leave our houses every day with a mask. And depending on the safe space that is created, um, someone might let us in on what that ma- what's being what's hidden behind that mask. Okay. And it might be auditory hallucinations. It might be visual. It might be depression. It might be uh, anxiety. Um, the gamut. Um, mental illnesses are common, um, and the course is designed to equip folks with with tools in the event that someone wants to to talk. Um, because a lot of the time, mental illnesses are described as very isolating. This is an eight-hour course. It's spread over two days. And, you know, s- situations that require regular first aid seem obvious to me. Applying a tourniquet, doing chest compressions. Sure. But how would I recognize a situation requiring mental health first aid? Is it that the person has to have removed their mask enough who knows me to reveal that? Are there other signs if they haven't removed the mask, as you say? Um, there are multiple answers. Um, first, it's it's a one-day, eight-hour course or two days um, with, in four-hour increments. Yeah. Um, but to answer that question, some of the time we may not know that person well. We may not have a rapport. But we might notice, you know, that person might be acting in a way that, doesn't appear normal to us. Um, If it is a loved one, we might notice a shift in their behavior or they have, you know, decided for whatever reason to to open up. And in those moments, uh, these tools are designed to, you know, give them that safe space and then make sure that they get linked to the appropriate resources to get that support. And do you really feel that if someone opened up about their mental illness to someone that a lot of us are ill-equipped to deal with that? I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. You'd you'd say, oh, gosh, I'm sorry you're going through that. Let me call a psychologist or let me call 911 if it's urgent. I I guess what you see is is an inability to respond appropriately if you're offering this training. Well, um, this is an evidence-based curriculum um, through the National Council of Behavioral Health. And their research shows that a lot of folks... um, don't pursue mental health assistance, either because they don't know who to contact or the loved ones around them that want to help don't know how to help. They don't um, feel comfortable. They don't feel like they have the right vocabulary to plug them into resources. Hmm. And again, this is what that curriculum is designed to, to provide them with. Yeah, you know? you're, you're going to give us a taste of that curriculum um, this morning. The National Conference for Behavioral Health, which you mentioned, says 500,000 people in the U.S. have had this training mm-hmm. and they've announced the goal of teaching 500,000 more. That, that came out earlier this week. It did, yes. And already over 20,000 people in Colorado have taken the course. Mm-hmm. Give us a sense for, for how it works. So again, to draw a parallel to first aid, I think of uh, ABC. They teach you that, airways, breathing, circulation, or uh, singing Staying Alive for the Rhythm of CPR. Sure. You teach something called ALGE. This mm-hmm. is an acronym. Correct. Um, first off, what, what does it stand for? And let's apply it to a situation I might run into. Uh, ALGE is the acronym or the mnemonic, I'm sorry, that anchors the program. ALGE um, stands for A, assess for risk of suicide or harm, which is basically being comfortable to ask someone very directly, are you thinking about killing yourself? That's a question you should ask. Absolutely. And how do you know if someone is thinking about it unless you ask? Okay. You can suspect, but... 
we go through the opportunity to have someone actually ask the questions and get pushed past that uncomfortability um, for asking such an invasive question. Okay. The L is listen non-judgmentally, and this is where I usually quote Maya Angelou, where she says, "People don't uh, remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel." And whether you listened and whether you took in what they were saying. And what does non-judgmental look like? You know, it's it's about body posture, whether it's open or closed. It's about making sure that, you know, if you're uncomfortable and your palms are sweaty, you know, making sure that you're still and presenting a confident presence. You go on to G, give reassurance, E, encourage professional help, and then encourage self-help and support. What's the scenario you use to run through algae? Um, I have one in front of me, actually. Okay. And it is as follows. Your neighbor isn't coming out of her house. You knock on the door, and she says she's too afraid to open it because there are people from the government trying to hurt her. You know that she hasn't been out of her house for weeks. How would you respond? It's interesting. I can imagine lots of people just avoiding the situation. Yes. Because it is potentially so uncomfortable. Correct. So isn't that really the first hurdle to cross? Agreed. That's a crossroads that we discuss. Um, You know, we we live in a tension in our society of two schools of thought. One that is, you know, keep keep your business to yourself. Mm. Keep family business in the family. And that collides a lot of the time with, you know, I am my brother's keeper. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Okay, so if I'm going to apply algae, that first thing is assess for risk of suicide or harm. I guess I'm knocking on her door. Yes. And I'm going to say... Are you okay? What's going on? I noticed I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. Um, You haven't been out. Um, Things like that. Correct. But I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I wonder if you run into people in this training who are afraid to enter that situation. Because what happens if if it devolves very quickly? Or what happens if that puts you in jeopardy, if that person is potentially violent? Well, and... One of the first things we cover and remind folks of is safety first and to trust your gut. Um, I usually remind everyone of the the spiel at the beginning of the airplane ride where they talk about, you know, a difference in cabin pressure. The masks come from the sky and cover your mask first. That's a reminder to them, you know, take care of yourself first. Be safe. You know, make sure that you have the exit, you know. In your in your sights or invite the person outside or go with someone so that you don't have to operate in Mm. a vacuum. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about mental health first aid training. There is an effort in this state and this uh, in this country as well to get more people trained in this regard, not just in CPR for physical first aid, but in ways to help people who may be suffering from uh, mental illness in some regard. Um, if I go to my neighbor's house, the the next question may arise that she, she is indeed having trouble. And then it's, how do I connect her with, I don't know, a clinic or a psychologist. And it, it sounds like there's a lot of people who don't know that next step. They don't, they don't know where to send someone. Right. And they walk away in the course at the end with 
lists of resources, national phone numbers, local phone numbers, websites, um, self-help resources, so that they have that information at their fingertips. And some of the folks even go to the extent of plugging some of the numbers in before they leave that day. Because you're you're right. I mean, people don't know what the next steps are. Um, and they know that, you know, 911 is an option. They know that there are, if they don't feel equipped to handle that situation, they have the numbers available that they can, you know, contact PD um, who are trained um, to de-escalate situations. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of resources that they leave with at the end of the course. But isn't it true that often mental health is dealt with in a law enforcement regard when that may not be the best way to deal with it? I think that's the case, and I think that's one of the the reasons we have this course. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm a member of Centura Health, and so a lot of folks that come into the emergency room um, – have de- are dealing with a crisis that could possibly have been de-escalated should they or if they were given a person to talk to or a neighborhood health center that would have been available to them versus the ER. Hmm. Is there any evidence that this has saved lives, prevented suicides, made a difference? Could it be that it just makes the person taking the training feel better about themselves? Uh, yes to both answers, actually. Like I mentioned, it's an evidence-based curriculum. Um, statistics I don't have um, at my fingertips, but I'm happy to forward to you. Um, it's in the SAMHSA registry um, as far as being an evidence-based product. Um, so as far as being you, able I'm, to... I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of what you're saying there. The SAMHSA-based SAMHSA, registry. an LMNOP. My apologies. That's okay. <laughs> Uh, but, but have you heard anecdotally of situations in which this has changed the dynamic? Yes, actually, one of the questions that we ask um, at the at the four week mark um, after they've taken the course is, do you feel more comfortable approaching someone? Do you feel more comfortable recognizing signs and symptoms? Do you feel more equipped? And the responses have been very positive. Um, actually, about 70 percent of the respondents have have. Um, responded positively, that they do feel much more equipped. And um, a lot of folks have from this hospital system have, you know, given me very specific feedback and scenarios where they've implemented this curriculum. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, generated some really positive results. It strikes me, Angela, that in many ways, this is also about getting rid of the stigma around mental illness, making it okay to talk about. Absolutely. Because stigma is a block to people getting help. Correct. Correct. Thank you for being with us and running through some of those exercises with us. Thank you for having me. Angela McDonald, Behavioral Health Manager for Centura Health. She wants to train a 1,000 Coloradans in mental health first aid in 2016. There's more information at cprnews.org. When we come back, a novel idea to hold lawmakers accountable. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If an individual lawmaker fails, you can vote him or her out. But what if a legislative body, i.e. Congress or the state assembly, fails? A panel at DU says there's not much you can do. It finds there's virtually no collective accountability for legislative bodies. And after 10 months of trying to crack this nut, the group has come up with a solution. It's a new approach to governing. Jim Grismer led DU's panel on legislative accountability, and he joins us just days before Colorado lawmakers reconvene. Nice to see you again, Jim. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. So you got together a group of business and foundation leaders, academics, other folks in the community, and the idea was to find a way to hold lawmakers more accountable 
when it comes to getting things done that the people want done. Don't elections hold them accountable? I mean, I, I think if Congress is do nothing, I vote out my member of Congress. Well, of course, the great, great irony is that while our accountability mechanism for legislators is elections, and that's good and effective, uh, there's no accountability mechanism for the legislature as a whole. And if you think about it, the only way that legislators can act is collaboratively, collectively. And so we have this dissonance between an individual accountability mechanism, yet the only way you can act is collectively, and there is no accountability for the legislator in a collective way. Hmm. Are you letting voters off the hook too easily, though? I mean, maybe they should be tougher about how they vote. Uh, you know, I think of polls that show some people are dissatisfied with Congress, but they like their individual representative. Maybe the voters aren't doing a good enough job if they're dissatisfied with the whole output. Well, there's overwhelming frustration, particularly with Congress, and it varies also by state. Colorado has much to commend it in terms of its legislature, um, but certainly at the congressional level and in many states, there's great frustration on the part of the public. Part of the problem is that um, there's no way in which the public can really judge. Um, there are hundreds of bills introduced. Uh, no citizen can follow all of them. There's no real way to make a judgment. And so the panel's suggestion was that um, we have a simple mechanism, um, and that is that the legislature collectively uh, should identify what's most important in the state, in the city, in the nation. What are the issues that really need to be tackled? And then at the end of the session, simply provide a fairly brief and direct report on what they did. Were they able to deal with an issue? If not, why not? And that collective agenda, if you will, that is set out by, I guess, by both parties? Actually, um, today, in most legislative bodies, each party sets up an agenda. Right. The problem is that's the agenda for the party, not for the institution. And so what the panel said was, we really need an institutional agenda that requires some collaboration in and of itself. But then again, that's what legislatures are supposed to do. It is such a divided time. I am trying to imagine what that collective agenda would look like if Republicans and Democrats sat down together and said, here's what we want to achieve. Well, it's interesting that um, we somehow feel that that becomes almost impossible um, with legislatures. But think a minute. Every company, every institution, this radio station, the University of Denver, all have to sit down and say, what's most important? Where are we going to put our resources? Where are we going to put our energy? Why shouldn't we expect the same of a legislative body? And then if this agenda were to come out and, you know, the, the year of legislating wraps up and you find the body has not been held to account, the body has not achieved those goals, you still only have your individual lawmaker to kick out, Well, which often doesn't happen, by the way. Incumbents do very well, you know. They do. And it's, um, it's easy to oversimplify. You have elections, uh, the primary processes, you have campaign finance issues, you have high rates of incumbency return. So it's not a simple matter. The panel thought, though, that 
while uh, an agenda and a report doesn't do not represent a panacea, they're first step. They're a way in which the public can at least make a more informed judgment about their individual legislator. You know, I don't think it's enough for a legislator to come home and say to his or her constituents, they didn't do anything. But that's what we hear so often. Let's talk about what issues might emerge if this big agenda were created, this accountability tool. What what do you imagine those collectively being? Well, if you look at um, uh, the state of Colorado, for example, clearly issues of transportation – Um, issues relating to education, constitutional issues, um, campaign finance issues. There's a wide range of topics that are important in Colorado. Um, The legislature, you know, one can't solve everything. I I think it would be a very healthy process if the legislature said, okay, here are four things that are really important in this state right now, and we want to at least talk about them and try and tackle them. Some of the issues you bring up there, we also heard from a former lawmaker. We ran this idea by a couple of people who've done legislating, among them Rob Whitwer. He's a Republican from Golden. And uh, though he does not necessarily endorse this proposal, uh, he does reflect this idea that important issues aren't necessarily being tackled by legislatures. uh, And you've identified a problem. The systematic failure of legislative bodies to address the big picture problems that affect everybody, whether it be the long-term sustainability of of social welfare programs, infrastructure decay, those are issues that require some kind of action, even if the action is to decide not to take action. The problem is, is that legislative bodies, increasingly so every year, spend more and more of their time and more and more of their energy posing and posturing for the party's respective bases. And it's not addressing the issues that really need to be taken on. These issues are big enough and complicated enough that you need something resembling a consensus to fix them. So the idea that lawmakers are appealing more to their parties than perhaps some central agenda, as you lay out in, in this idea from the University of Denver. What do you think, though, about his comment? Maybe they decide... Not taking action is okay. Well, first of all, I would second uh, his observations about the importance of focusing one's time and energy on important issues. Um, The second thing that I think is important about the reporting process suggested by the panel is, you know, creating public policy is difficult work. Um, It's not an easy thing to achieve. And so the panel's thought was this report that the legislature puts out It's also an educational vehicle. It's a way to say, you know, we looked at this issue, whatever it is, and there are some very tough dimensions to this. And so it's a way not only to explain to the public what was achieved, but also to highlight uh, the fact that there are some really difficult problems that aren't easily fixed. And to get perhaps a central conversation going in a state or in a country. But to this idea, though, of inaction... I imagine there are people who think, you know what, government's doing plenty for me or, you know, I'd like it out of my life to some extent. Is the assumption here that more government is better government? No. More legislating is better legislating? No, uh, it is not. The assumption is that we ought to focus on what's important. Uh, One of our 
panel members, a business person, put it very well. He said, you know, to me, accountability is telling people what you're going to do and then telling them what you did. And essentially, that's what the report suggests. But it doesn't lend to that speed necessarily. No. And I don't think that the issue here is is uh, speed. Um, the issue is focus. I want to bring up on this point uh, the former Speaker of the House, Democrat Mark Ferrandino, um, who had this reflection on, on pace and on gridlock. Our legislative bodies were set up to be slow-moving, deliberative process that did not create a lot of change quickly. And that is what our founders wanted. So here's what I can imagine. You come out with this big agenda as, as a legislature or as a Congress, and you say, here, nation, here, state is what we're going to achieve. And then it doesn't happen overnight. And um, lawmakers are faulted for that. And yet here's Ferrandino saying, yes, but things should take time. W- will the public inherently understand that that's a reality? I think it's important to, to separate the notion of speed from the issue of focusing on the big questions. I agree with the speaker that um, legislatures are by design slow change institutions. But being deliberative is not the same as um, uh, allowing one not to focus on what's important. So that the public, in the panel's view, the public has a right to know that a their legislators are identifying the big issues that they're not that they're not majoring in the minors but they're focusing on what's important the public needs to understand that not all those issues are simple and some will take time so we heard there from former house speaker mark ferrandino a democrat let's hear this from penn fifner he's a republican who served in the 90s and he talked about some of the dimensions that could make this tricky your idea of setting an agenda in Colorado specifically? The very fact that Colorado is divided almost down the middle in terms of left and right, liberal and conservative, should lead us to expect that change will be slow and incremental as as different ideas are tried. Colorado doesn't have a singular vision. Colorado doesn't have a singular vision. And yet, this idea of laying out an agenda is something of a singular vision. Do minorities, and I don't mean just racial minorities, but viewpoint minorities, get crushed in this idea? No, I don't think so. I think the fact, and if we use Colorado as an example, um, that we have um, uh, divided views, fairly evenly divided views, it happens in this state suggests that there's plenty of opportunity for various uh, subjects and topics and perspective to get into the mix. Um, But again, um, it's important to identify uh, what are the most significant matters. You know, it isn't good enough to say our views are different than the guy across the aisle. You have to go beyond that. And And I think it's important to recognize that the enormous level of frustration um, in the U.S. Uh, populace with Congress, approval rating of 8 percent, the lowest in the history of polling, is a reflection that people expect legislators to deal with tough issues and to tackle them and to produce results just as people are expected to do that in their own lives. Is it possible that this is a Band-Aid on a much larger wound? Uh, you know, there are 
other factors at play here. I mean, you've got gerrymandering. You've got, some would say, money in elections. There are societal factors, you know, cable news, talk radio, social media. If you created this legislative agenda, this way of holding uh, legislative bodies accountable, would it just be a Band-Aid on, on a much larger wound with many other factors? Well, your point, your point is well taken, Ryan. And the panel looked at a number of those issues, and they concluded that this is not a panacea, but it's a first step. And that was their recommendation. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Jim Grismer is a professor of management at the University of Denver. You can read up on legislative accountability and the solution that DU arrived at at CPRnews.org. Your feedback after a break on Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Loud and Clear, we get your feedback, and your reactions varied to my conversation with 18-year-old Kai Klepfer of Boulder, who has gotten money and recognition for his smart gun design. Nicole Joy of Denver tweeted, Thanks for the great interview and coverage regarding smart guns. What an inspiring young man. But Mark Robbins of Mankato, Minnesota, is wary of the technology, which recognizes its owner's fingerprint before unlocking the gun. He writes on our Facebook page, One more thing to fail. I don't want any electronics in my guns. Besides the possibility of a dead battery when you need it, especially in extreme cold, and the shock of recoil is likely to eventually damage the circuit. A proposal to require background checks for people who coach youth sports will come back in front of lawmakers in the session that starts next week. The idea is to weed out sexual predators. And we spoke with State Representative Jonathan Singer, a Democrat from Longmont who's sponsoring this. Leo McKinney of Glenwood Springs tweeted us that the bill is a no-brainer. But Todd Ellison of Denver disagreed. He emailed us to say that most sex offenders, once they're identified, don't go on to commit further sex crimes. Quote, this is a feel-good measure. The vast majority of sex crimes are committed by persons that have no past record. He cited a report from the California Sex Offender Management Board saying that fewer than 4% of convicted sex offenders released on parole in California in 2003 returned to prison for a new sexual offense within a three-year period. In Colorado, it's about the same, we found out from the Colorado Division of Criminal Justice. In a 2011 study, the agency followed sex offenders who had successfully completed a treatment program. Less than 3% of these individuals faced new sex crime charges over the next three years. Jeannie Smith is the director of the division. The 3% recidivism for new sexual offenses is actually fairly consistent with what we see nationally. But does it accurately reflect all behaviors that are going on? The answer to that, of course, is no. That's partly because of underreporting, she said. Point being, documented cases of reoffending almost certainly don't tell the whole story. And in our interview, Representative Singer did address similar criticism that his bill isn't enough to protect kids. You can't let the perfect be the enemy of keeping kids safe. Uh, nothing is perfect out there. But at the very least, what we can do is actually make sure that we have the bare minimum, bare bones in there. Earlier this week, we heard about the history of the National Western Stock Show from CU Denver history professor Tom Noel. Several listeners think the stock show belongs in the past. 
They include Amy Harry, who wrote at CPRnews.org, The stock show is animal cruelty. All use of animals for entertainment and profit should end now. And what a barbaric form of entertainment, wrote Morella Seaman. We asked the stock show for a response and got this statement. National Western supports animal welfare principles, which seek to improve the treatment and well-being of animals. Supporting animal welfare means believing humans have the right to use animals. Along with that right comes the responsibility to provide proper and humane care and treatment. And it looks like the stock show is here to stay. The city of Denver received more than $121 million from the state last month to renovate the National Western Complex and make it a year-round attraction. We always welcome your feedback. On Facebook, we're CPR News. On Twitter, at Colorado Matters. Or you can comment on individual story pages at CPRnews.org. Electric cars in Colorado don't help the environment as much as in other parts of the country. That's according to the Union of Concerned Scientists. CPR's Sam Brash has been looking over this new study and talked about it with Mike Lamp. So if you buy an electric car, that helps the environment. But how much of it is a matter of geography? Yeah, a little bit is a matter of geography. Electric cars need to be recharged, right? And that electricity comes from power plants, plants that vary across the country. Electric cars charged by solar and wind are going to be cleaner than those charged by coal. So the study breaks down the nation by EPA grid regions to see where electric cars cause the least carbon emissions. And how does Colorado stack up there? Yeah, not well. Uh, To give some perspective, the scientists ran some math to figure out how pollution from electric cars compares to pollution from gas cars in each of these regions. For instance, driving an electric car in New York results in about the same carbon emissions as driving an 135-mile-per-gallon gas car. But in Colorado's region, it's more like a 35-mile-per-gallon cast car. That puts Colorado at the bottom of the pack, along with Kansas and other Midwestern states. And now why is there a difference from one region to another? One big factor is coal. That's a big energy source for the region that includes Colorado and parts of New Mexico, Nebraska, Wyoming, and South Dakota. Uh, Colorado gets about 60% of its electricity from coal. Wyoming gets about 80%, which means that state drags down our whole EPA grid region in this ranking. Well, if Colorado is being dragged down by neighbor states, why the focus on these larger regions instead of individual states? Yeah, I asked that question to Don Anair. He's with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he says power generation isn't clearly separated by state borders. There's a lot of trade between states. And so the grid regions attempt to deal with some of that. It's not perfect, but it's, it's a little bit better than these arbitrary state boundaries. In other words, the group felt grid regions offered the best snapshot of the whole country. But it sounds like something gets lost in that snapshot if Colorado's ranking is affected by that of neighboring states. Yeah, something does get lost. This study helps show how electric cars compare to gas cars on climate from a broad perspective. But I'd imagine there's people listening to this in electric cars right now, and they shouldn't feel bad if they bought their car for its climate friendliness. Uh, The same study affirms that from cradle to grave, an average electric car will have less than half the carbon emissions of a comparable gas car. And the power grid issue can really come down to what city you live in. Tyler Swedock made that point. He promotes electric cars for the American Lung Association. Charging in Aspen has almost zero 
life cycle carbon emissions because the Aspen Electric Grid is 100% renewable. It's even more specific than the region that has been covered in reports. And there are other environmental benefits to electric cars. Gas cars emit pollutants like carbon monoxide much closer to cities where people can breathe them in. And electric cars displace that pollution to power plants usually outside of cities. And in Colorado and in other states, uh, electric utilities are moving toward more renewable sources for the electricity they generate. Right, yeah. Energy from solar and wind is growing here, and Colorado requires investor-owned utilities to generate 30% of electricity from renewables by 2020. And that means that unlike a gas car, an electric car will actually get cleaner over time as the grid improves. Well, Sam, thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. CPR's Sam Brash talking with my colleague Mike Lamp at CPRnews.org. Learn about the growth of electric cars in Colorado. That's the program for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our producers are Michael Dayoana, Andrea Dukakis, Kareem Maddox, and Stephanie Wolf. Michael Hughes and Matt Hers are the audio engineers. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.